there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. If you're an aspiring journalist and you love the law, or you're super interested in national security or cybersecurity or the Middle East, fill in the blank, this is the episode for you. So grab a mug and take a chug and get ready for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is Ben Wittes, the editor-in-chief of Lawfare, a blog he co-founded and is devoted to the discussion of U.S. national security choices. And you really do have to check it out to appreciate just how comprehensive and how substantive it really is. Because to call it a blog is not really, in my opinion, doing it the service that it deserves. It would be like calling the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal a blog. There are podcasts, book reviews, research paper series, and also, for Java junkies, a job board. Ben is also a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, a nonpartisan public policy think tank, and the author of several books, and is co-chair of the Hoover Institution's working group on national security, technology, and law. Ben, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go at the end of the day here? Sure am. Fantastic. So let's get into your current job as editor-in-chief of Lawfare. What are your primary functions that you juggle day in, day out? So first of all, I guess I should start by saying that my actual job is that I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, in which capacity I run Lawfare, among other things. And so Lawfare has a funny relationship with Brookings. It's a separate organization, but it's a separate organization whose top editor, i.e. me, and whose executive editor, Susan Hennessy, are both fellows or senior fellows at Brookings. And so we sort of publish it in partnership with Brookings. And so my day job is that I'm a senior fellow at Brookings. And one of the things I do here is run Lawfare. Running Lawfare is mostly an editorial project. That is to say, we publish a fairly large volume of material day in, day out. And so some of that material is written by our kind of network of writers and they send stuff to us and we edit it and work with them to get it in shape and then get it up on the site. And a lot of it is written internally by the group at Brookings and right around us who are kind of the core editorial team of Lawfare. And so some part of it is supervising the core editorial staff. Some part of it is managing and editing the student contributors. We always have a group of law students who write for the site and sort of managing them, assigning stuff to them and editing their material as it comes in. And then some of it is handling our senior writers who are sort of part of this network that we've put together along with these outside contributors. And that's the sort of editorial side. And then the 
business side is that Lawfare used to be this tiny little blog of three friends and has become a kind of an institution that people really rely on for daily news and commentary. And we have had to build an organization to support that role that it's playing. And that's actually has taken a lot of my time over the last year. So you said Lawfare started as a project for three friends. How many staff are there now? at Lawfare? So it sort of depends how you count, but there are five people who essentially work full-time for Lawfare. In addition, there are either within the Brookings umbrella or directly employed by Lawfare. And then there are many others who devote substantial portions of their time to doing work for the site. And what made you want to start it? I started it with my two close friends and colleagues, Bobby Chesney at the University of Texas and and Jack Goldsmith at the Harvard Law School back in 2010. And we started it because we were concerned that too much of the debate over U.S. national security law was taking place in this kind of shouting match between human rights groups and civil liberties groups and the government over questions like Guantanamo and drone strikes. And we wanted a place where instead of kind of yelling about why the gov- we hate the government because they did X today or Y today, where we treated the working national security lawyer in the government as the audience, not the subject. We wanted to say, what are the questions these people are struggling with? And how can we put together analytic material that would actually help with some of these hard questions that would be useful to these people. And so we started it, we very much thought of it as just kind of a forum for our own kind of writing that was a little too technical or a little too long for it to be an op-ed, but wasn't quite at the level of a law review article or a Brookings paper or something. And what we found very quickly was that the thirst for this sort of material was intense. And this little site that we, I mean, we gave so little thought to it it becoming a thing that we never even decided, it was a group of lawyers, we never even decided who owned it. You know, that was how little attention we gave to the idea that it might become a regular part of people's media diet. It very quickly became a very substantial part of a group of people's reading who were driving U.S. national security legal policy. And so we started adding writers and we started thinking, well, maybe we should not just publish our own material, but we should host documents. When the government indicts somebody, we should just as a public service post the documents. So we started hosting that sort of valuable material that was of importance for journalists, for historians, for people who were litigating cases. And then we started experimenting with other things. We started a little podcast. Now, a lot of people listen to that podcast. And so the site started growing. And then Donald Trump happened. And the funny thing about this site that nobody could have anticipated, and certainly I can't pretend that I did anticipate, is that 
if you gather the group of people that you would really want to hear from about Guantanamo and drone strikes and NSA surveillance and cybersecurity and how to deal with counterintelligence problems and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. This turns out to be exactly the group of people that the broader public ends up wanting to hear from. And why that is, is a really interesting and complicated question. But the site during the 2016 campaign really for the first time broke through to a mass audience. And so now we're in this funny position where we have these two audiences. One is technical national security lawyers in government, and the other is a very large group of people out there that wants to understand things like the Mueller investigation. So... We're not going to be getting into any of the sort of breaking news aspects that Lawfare has been a part of. But at the same time, you know, when you think about what you do, the way you just described it at the outset by saying you work for Brookings, do you see yourself as a scholar? Do you see yourself as a journalist? Is it possible to be both? It's a very hard question, and I don't know the answer to it. I mean, I always used to think of myself as a journalist. And then I came to Brookings, where the word that we use to describe people who are in positions like mine is scholar. You generally don't say, yeah, Brookings senior fellow journalist, right? Like you call Brookings Senior Fellows scholars. I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, and scholars have policy positions that they are trying to influence policymakers to take. Right. So that one has never been a particular problem for me. I was an opinion journalist. I was an editorial writer. We took positions on things. I always had views. And I have no problem saying that one of the things that I do on Lawfare is express my views. I also, other people express their views. Lawfare itself takes no position on anything. But, you know, I don't have any problem with the idea that people associated with Lawfare may not be wholly disinterested. They may be involved in issues that we're writing about. We're very upfront about that. So that part of it doesn't detain me particularly. What I've never really gotten around is the deeper aspect of your question, which is kind of what the hell am I? Am I still a journalist? Well, yeah, in the sense that I publish a daily thing that people read, right? That's something like a magazine or a newspaper. And we only still call it a blog because the word blog is in the URL. <laughs> but as you said at the beginning, it doesn't really operate like a blog. And certainly when you read it, the image you get of a blogger of, you know, as sort of somebody in his pajamas in his parents' <laughs> basement is not what comes to mind, I don't think. On the other hand, I am pretty self-consciously not a scholar in the sense that I, I do not have an academic discipline. I don't have an academic degree. While I'm based at Brookings, I'm not a professor, and I'm sort of self-consciously not those things. And so my basic self-conception is I am a guy who does the things that I do, which is to say I write and speak, and I write and speak about law, and I sometimes teach and I sometimes go on television and I tweet things and I write a lot and I kind of leave it to others to figure out what the right word for that is to the extent that 
people ask me, I tend to call myself a legal writer. And when you were at Oberlin getting your undergraduate degree, you majored in English literature and Japanese history. What were you going to do with those degrees when you graduated? Did you know? I had no idea. And I had a, actually a conversation with a professor the year I was graduating. He had seen something in one of the Oberlin campus newspapers that I'd written that he'd liked. And he stopped me in the hall and told me he'd read it and liked it. And then he asked me, what are you going to do with yourself? And it's, of course, it's a hard question to ask to any college senior who's not applying to graduate school because it always provokes the crisis. And so I said to him, I, I know I never want to go to graduate school. And I think I just want to be one of those people who writes stuff and publishes it. And, you know, that's kind of more or less what I am. I certainly did not have a sense of the subject matter at the time as being law or national security. And I did not have a sense of the kind of institution like Brookings that employs people to do that. But I think I had a more of a sense that I wanted to write fiction. But I did have a, you know, I did have a, a kind of sense of the activities that I wanted to engage in. And they're kind of roughly similar to the activities that I engage in now. So I suppose in that sense, I knew what I wanted to do. But uh, it was very ill-formed and certainly developed slowly and over time and with a lot of experimentation and a lot of failure by the way. I want to ask you about something that you shared in the espresso shots when you were talking about the skills that you thought were most valuable for Java junkies interested in getting into this general field, this melange that you have, <laughs> that you've put together here. And you said to be really good at reading a sonnet well, if you're really good at reading a sonnet, you'll be able to digest some of the legal briefs and other things that will come across your desk. Why is that? Yeah, so I actually feel very strongly about that. I think that people assume that the set of skills associated with reading and writing about law are technical legal skills. And there's an element of truth to that in the sense that, you know, a statute is a particular type of written document and it works in a particular type of way. And you kind of have to learn what the code is for reading certain types of law. But the best way to learn how to read any text is to read and analyze poetry. Because reading poetry, and particularly reading certain forms of poetry, poetry writing is about packing as much meaning as you can into very short expressions, right? That's what makes it work when it works well, right? Is that each phrase is doing a lot of work. And the task of reading it is the task of gleaning meaning out of these phrases. And if you're trying to understand a statute, that is really the same task. What did Congress do when it wrote this passage? What did it exclude? What did it include? What did it forbid? What does what it forbade by not include and therefore allow? These are questions that somebody who has a real facility with poetry is going to have a really good 
set of skills for working with. And so when somebody comes to me and they say, I spent time with this particular statue, that's often very interesting. (laughs) But when somebody comes to me and says, I spent time with John Donne's sonnets, I can have a very high degree of confidence that that person is going to know how to read a statue. It doesn't happen very often, by the way. I'm writing it down. (laughs) (laughs) I'm writing that name down. I'm going to look him up. I'm actually not familiar with him. Ben, what did you do? You've already alluded to some of the writing you did while you were on campus outside of academic writing. But what else did you do in terms of extracurricular activities, clubs, internships that now, in hindsight, turned out to be assets once you started looking for jobs and getting into the working world? Okay, so I'm going to give you a very unsatisfying answer to this question, which is none. Um, (laughs) So first of all, I was a very bad student, and I almost didn't finish high school. And when I went to college, I realized pretty quickly that if I didn't do it very fast, I wasn't going to finish it. And so I did college very quickly. And I did essentially no extracurricular activities. And I got out as quickly as I could. How quickly was that? How many years? So they weren't consecutive. So but I guess it was three years altogether. And when I left, I left it, put a bicycle on an airplane and flew it about as far as it was possible to be in the world from Oberlin, Ohio, which was New Zealand. And I spent the next several months riding a bicycle around New Zealand instead of doing an internship like, you know, like you were supposed to do as a recent college grad who's ambitious. And I came back having no idea what I wanted to do with myself, except that I wanted to write. And I kind of mucked around trying different kinds of writing for uh, probably two and a half, three years before I got my first job as a writer. And what was that? And how did you get it? So I spent a lot of time trying to write fiction, and I was terrible at it. And I, it wasn't even that I couldn't get any of it published. It was that I was so ashamed of it, I wouldn't even try. It was like that experience of learning that I actually have no imagination was a really good one. And people are embarrassed to say they have no imagination, and I'm not. It's just something I learned about myself. And so in that period of time, every time I would try to write something that I would involve you know, a fiction that I had made up, it was terrible, and I was embarrassed by it. And any time by contrast, I, you know, I lived in Washington and I would go just because I was kind of curious about things. I would go kind of poke around in public records rooms in Washington. And every time I would do that, I would walk out with a story and I would find that people wanted to publish what I'd found. And so over the course of those three years, I started freelancing and getting a bunch of stuff published and started doing a lot of writing for Washington City Paper, which was then more prominent as an investigative outlet than it is now and ended up going to work for a legal newspaper called Legal Times because some of the stories I had written and had some kind of legal inflections to them. I went to work for Legal Times when I was probably 23 or 24. And that was kind of how I caught the the legal side of my career. That sort of bug kind of infected me there and has never let go. I would like to push back on something you said just a moment ago about not having an imagination. 
because I think the very fact that you conceptualized and breathed life into lawfare was a creative venture. You just have a different kind of creativity and innovation. Yeah, so I'm being self a little bit self-deprecating when I say no imagination, but I mean it seriously, if a little bit less broadly than the phrase implies. What I mean by it is that I am not somebody who is good at making up stories or characters or narrative. I'm actually a very good storyteller, but I'm not good at generating the story. And so this was something that I had to discover about myself because I always thought of myself as a good storyteller. And I was always the kid who, in a circle of other kids, I could hold other people's attention telling stories. And I never noticed about myself that I wasn't making them up. They were always, well, they were always in their essence true. I might have embellished them a lot because, you know, I was a teenager, right? And But the essence of it tended to be true. And so I was working with source texts that didn't require me to generate from scratch. And when you sit down to write fiction, that gets stripped away from you, at least if you're writing fiction that isn't inspired by some kind of source text. And I found that not just difficult, but I was unable to do it. And at various times in my life, I have tried again and always failed in exactly the same way. And, you know, I said in the espresso shots conversation that I don't get writer's block. And to be precise, what I mean is I don't get writer's block when I write nonfiction. I'm, I cannot write fiction. <laughs> yeah, I think I fall into the same bucket. Ben, I want to ask you to tell a story, to share a story with our Java junkies. It's something that I try to do in almost every interview. And that is a story about a failure. You alluded to this a few minutes ago. Something where you crashed. I don't want to embellish things, but fill in the blank and how you recovered to reach where you are today. Because life is a journey. Most of us have failures. Most of us have difficult bosses and clash and this and the other. And it is possible to recover. It is possible to have resilience because I see it every single day. Yeah. So first of all, I want to stress that while I am making light of the discovery that I had no imagination and could not write fiction, and I am very at peace with it today in part because it led to some important successes. And the process of exploring it produced some really valuable things for me, including everything that I value about my career. That process was not fun. And spending a large block of time trying something and failing at it is hard. And I'm very glad I did it. And I can still conjure the primal dread that I felt in that period of time a lot of the time. I had some other good things going on in my life in that period. So it wasn't like it was a horrible period of time for me. This aspect of it was was unpleasant. And so that's, you know, just to turn the levity of the way I described it initially into a response to your current question, just start with that. But I want to, there's a, a happier version of that, which is, look, many aspects of lawfare started with failures. 
Lawfare itself is an accident. Three guys got together and started a little blog that we never imagined would acquire a, a mass readership. And it has been the project that kind of grabbed us by the tail and has been, at least for me, the dominant feature of my professional existence ever since. That said, there's a lot of things about it that haven't worked. And things that I was sure were going to be really important aspects of it. So I'll give you an example. Early in the history of Lawfare, when we realized that we had this readership, we said, well, gosh, we should get the readership to contribute to the site. And we should build a document library of the entire field of national security law. We should do it on the basis of a wiki and just have people contribute material. And, you know, look, Wikipedia can do it. We've got a much smaller field than the whole world. So we should build the whole world of national security law. And we built this wiki, and nobody contributed to it. And it was completely embarrassing. And by the way, the only people who contributed to it were the sort of people who you wouldn't necessarily want to contribute because these things either are self-generative or they don't work. And then nobody contributes to it. And so we had very little content for it, and it was all bad. And we'd invested time, energy, and money in creating it, and it really wasn't working. And I was not ready to appreciate that. So we let it drag on for a while. And I was sure this was going to be a big part of Lawfare's success. And it wasn't. And so you snip that cord at some point. And here's the wonderful thing. Nobody remembers that we even tried it. <laughs> you know, like, like it, it looms kind of large for me because mm -hmm. it was this great idea that I was sure was going to be a big thing. And it was kind of a mess and it was a, but nobody else remembers that we ever tried it. And, you know, we all have these ideas of these great embarrassments, these career-ending mistakes that are going to rise up, crawl out from under the bed and <laughs> grab you and drag you under and end your career. And then you make a few of them and they don't end your career. And so that's, that's another one, a kind of more recent one. I have also, in the last few years, a couple of years, had questions about, you know, for the first time in my professional life, my public profile is high enough that there are actually a lot of people who are aware of me and really don't like me. And this is the first time I have had to deal with the fact that there are conspiracy theorists out there who think about me more than I would like. And that is not a creature of failure, but it is a creature that requires resilience. And it is something that you wonder sometimes, why am I doing this? And those are some feelings that are not wholly dissimilar to the feelings you get when things really are not working and when you feel like you've failed at something. Oof. Well, thank you, Ben, for sharing those experiences with me and with our Java Junkie community. That's, you know, in the era of social media and bots and haters, and that is some really tough medicine, to, not even medicine, but just tough experiences to have to, to go through every day. So here's a lighter note to end on, Ben. If you could go back to Oberlin and do college all over again, based on the wisdom that you have today, 
what advice would you give yourself? So there's an easy version of that question and a hard version of that question. So here's the easy version. I would give myself the advice, either study a language well enough so that at the end of it, you have use of it or don't do it at all. But what I did is the (laughs) worst combination. I took just enough Russian so that I don't have usable Russian. It took up an enormous amount of time that I therefore didn't have for other things. And I never got to read Dostoevsky, which was the reason that I wanted to study Russian in the first place. So I would advise myself like, okay, either major in Russian and really learn Russian or just don't do it. But don't, you know, like, don't think you're going to like learn Russian on the side. Yeah, but I bet you say how to show really well. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I have very good fake Russian accent. Um, So the harder question is, how would you have distributed, assuming you didn't take the plunge and really use that, you use even more time to learn Russian and just majored in Russian, what would you have spent more time on? And the answer is, I think I would have, in my professional life, and in my reading the, the newspaper life, the things that I feel uneducated about are that I don't have more math, don't have more economics, and don't have certain basic kind of mid-level science. You know, my physics and chemistry and biology are fine, but not wonderful. And I regret that. And I feel like there's a level at which when I read the newspaper about an economic story, I understand it at the level that I have patience, but ultimately contempt for people who write about law at the level at which I understand this economics. And I don't like being one of those people that people need to be patient and a little bit contemptuous of. And I feel the same way about a a lot of sort of hard sciences. And so I, I regret that my education isn't a little bit more distributed than it is. You and me both. So hopefully Java junkies are paying attention as I know they are and will take this wonderful advice and so much wisdom to heart. Ben, I want to thank you from the bottom of my coffee cup for taking time at the end of what I'm sure has been a very long day to have coffee with me and with the Java Junkie community. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.